So, uh, today we will be starting John chapter 19, and we will be covering the first 15 verses. And, uh, but to start off, um, you know, as I've done previously, I kind of want to share some things about, uh, you know, experiences I've had with my family. Um, I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. And uh, I want to share with you some of my memories at church. So um, we used to attend a very small church called Armenian Evangelical Brethren Church. It's uh, up on Washington Boulevard and Sierra Bonita, maybe 100 or so members. And it was a very traditional church. I mean, traditional to the bone, where um, you know the men would wear suit and ties, and, uh, and the women would have their special Sunday dresses and their hats, and they would even wear their gloves. And, you know, us kids, we had to uh, get dressed up with our shirts and bow ties, and, uh, and you know, we all looked all formal. And um, so my brother and I would basically sit down with mom and grandmother, and uh, dad was a deacon at the time. And he would lead worship, um, which consisted of various hymns from a songbook that's about this thick. And, uh, you know, there was the piano playing or the organ and sometimes a violin. Never a guitar. Never saw a guitar in church. But um, one of the the songs he sang, Daryl, How Great Thou Art, I still remember that was number 601 in the songbook. (laughs) Just know that by heart. It was very popular, as it is now. So, um, you know, singing the hymns, you know, some of the men would sing really low, like an octave low, like, Oh, great thou art. And then you'd have some of the ladies who would sing, like, two octaves too high, like, Oh, great thou (laughs) And then you'd have some people who are just way off key, but, but, you know, um, But, you know, the Lord is looking at the heart. He's looking at the motive of the heart. And, uh, you know, as the example Pastor X gave in this Sunday message, you know, these believers, they were not merely involved in church. You know, you know, like the chicken who just contributed the eggs or the, uh, the cow who contributed the milk? I mean, these believers were like the pig. They supply the bacon. They were totally committed to it. So why am I giving you all these details? Um, well, I wanted to focus on hymns. And uh, there was a very special hymn written by Isaac Watts around 1707, um, where he compiled the bulk of his book called Hymns and Spiritual Songs. And this hymn, this was actually one that inspired me to uh, learn how to play some chords on the guitar and spend some time with the Lord um, singing his praises. And I want to stress, I can play chords. I can't really play the guitar very well. But um, I actually went out and looked on Craigslist to buy a guitar, and I found this Yamaha for 20 bucks. It was all beaten up and and all that, but uh, it worked. And it's been really neat, you know, just to be able to spend some time alone with the Lord and... uh, and just practice songs, learn songs, memorize them, and use that time to be with him. And um, I thought it fitting to share a specific hymn with you 
as it relates to the subject matter of tonight's study. And, uh, and it does actually uh, cover a little bit of next week's study, so just think of it as an intro to next week as well. It is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Verse 2 reads, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads over his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And the last verse, to Christ who won for sinner's grace, by bitter grief and anguish sore, be praise from all the ransomed race, forever and forevermore. And I had never seen a couple of these verses which were in the original song itself. And uh, interesting thing about um, Isaac Watts, um, he was in his early 20s when he wrote this. And it's just amazing how when the Lord inspires you with his spirit, the amazing things that can, you can put out to worship him. So um, just wanted to use that as an introduction to today's lesson and also next week's lesson because there are, there are specific things in this song which, uh, which you'll see it's very apparent that's in the text today. So uh, last week, Pastor Fernando covered the final section of John chapter 18 where Jesus was brought from Caiaphas to the Praetorium and now questioned by Pilate. And Pilate found no fault in Jesus, and he was trying to get out of a very sticky situation by offering to release a prisoner during the Jewish Passover. As it states, it was a custom. He offered them the king of the Jews, but as we read, the crowd insisted on the release of Barabbas, a robber and a murderer who was most likely waiting on death row. And uh, as Pastor Fernando inferred, Barabbas was the first sinner whom Jesus took the place of. So as we move into the lesson for today, um, I want you to consider three things here. First, there is Pilate's character and motive. Number two, there's the attitude of Christ's accusers. And number three, our Lord and Savior's all-encompassing love for humanity. So... Um, now that we move into chapter 19, um, there's an unfair trial taking place, not only of an innocent man, but of the righteous Lord and Savior. And uh, let's read the text real quick here. And it's basically two parts. The first part is where Jesus is mocked 
And the second part is where Pilate basically makes his decision. So verse 1, chapter 19, it reads, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And we stop there for this particular study. So let's see here. Um, so this is Pilate's second attempt to release Jesus. It is, it is referenced in Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 17. And it reads there, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Verse 1, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. 
So think of this. This is such an unfair trial. You have Pilate, the judge, in these proceedings. He is abusing the prisoner, even though he had declared Jesus to be completely innocent of these charges. But, you know, this was an attempt to pacify the prosecutors. And we see in chapter 18, verses 39 to 40, that the Jews were completely outraged and disappointed at the prospect of their king being released to them. So we read in uh, John 18, verse 39, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now think about this. Even if Pilate's intention was good to provide a means to release Jesus from uh, crucifixion, um, what he did was not justified. Pilate gave Jesus over to be scourged. And, you know, these scourgings, we've heard lots of descriptions about them, and it's not just, you know, one smack of the whip. I mean, it is just a horrendous sight where, you know, flesh is exposed, bones are exposed, and uh, it leaves the prisoner just mangled and bloody. And think about this. Christ submitted himself to this pain and shame for our sake. Now, why would Christ do this? Well, one reason is that Scripture would be fulfilled. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I mean, our Lord and Savior gave his back to those who smote him. In Psalm 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And we get more prophecy here. Um, Jesus foretold his disciples what would happen. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, it reads, now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, we read, Now they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And in the account of Luke chapter 18, verse 31, we read, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Um, You know, with Jesus predicted what was going to happen. And um, there is the permissive will of God and there is the absolute will of God. Nothing can change the absolute will of God because he wanted to save us. We have another reason here. By his stripes we may be healed. Now all these scourgings, beatings, and torture and humiliation, Jesus bore the wrath of God the Father for what you and I truly deserve. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read, Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So Pilate was hoping, and I'm speculating here, but I'm thinking that, you know, by subjecting Jesus to all this physical punishment, that uh, Jesus would not be condemned to death, but we know that God's design for his one and only begotten son was to be scourged so that we wouldn't be condemned and that we would have fellowship in his suffering. Now, a third point here, for those who faithfully follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are called to suffer, just imagining that he went through all that torture and punishment and pain, you know, um, we too can rejoice in the shame that he suffered. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, we read, And they agreed with him, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, do we suffer at all here in the U.S.? Not at all. And you look at the examples of these apostles where they were beaten for no reason except for proclaiming the truth to the people who need to hear it. Let's take the example of Paul and Silas. Um, You remember the story where they uh, exercised a demon from the slave girl. In Acts chapter 16, verse 20 to 25, it reads, And they brought them out to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in their stocks. You know, Paul suffered a lot. And it's just uh, unimaginable uh, suffering for Christ. Does that give us joy? Would that give us joy? Um, And look at the joy that they have. In verse 25 it reads, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So when we go through hard times, difficulties, um, trials, um, are we singing joyfully to the Lord and just relying on Him and keeping our eyes on Him?
In 1 Corinthians 11.23, it reads, um, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Paul was in stripes above measure. And what an example of a man who loved Christ and was willing to just do what was obedient. In Matthew chapter 5.11, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because Christ suffered for us, it takes away the sting when we suffer for his name's sake. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect Establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can we all say amen to that? So that was verse 1. You guys ready for verse 2? Okay, I promise it's not going to be as long. (laughs) We were kind of having a joke downstairs um, since Pastor Fernando spoke really, really long that Sunday morning. He was telling me, oh, you can keep him until 9.30. Don't worry, I won't do that. Okay, so verse 2 reads, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Verse 3, Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Just look at the baseness, the lack of moral character, and injustice of Pilate here. He proclaimed with his own words that he had found no fault in this man, and yet he has him beaten, then undeservedly abused by the guards. Maybe this was for his own humor. Um, we read that Herod did the same to Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 11, it reads, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him, Jesus, with contempt, and mocked him arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Maybe um, Pilate wanted to humor the Jews who wanted to disgrace Christ even further. And as if a severe physical beating would not suffice, Pilate turns Jesus over to his soldiers that they may further humiliate him and ridicule him. And notice specifically what these soldiers thought were fitting for Jesus. A crown of thorns. Can you imagine having a crown of thorns placed on your head and pushed into the skin? And the imagery, what I'm thinking here is that it's almost like submitting to Christ is like forcing one's head into a thorny bush. That is way further from the truth. And uh, they just put some purple robe on him 
And this is a mock robe, as if this is a joke and, uh, and merely a figment of the imagination. I mean, they're just mocking him. They're not showing him any respect, and they're calling him king of the Jews. But, um, you know, think about this. What kind of respect did the Romans have for the Jews? And uh, you got to think, you know, like the people, like their king, they're not going to show him any respect. Then what really troubled me here, they had the audacity to hit God himself. Can you imagine the Lord's humility and meekness? Um, I mean, Jesus, at any second, he could have commanded thousands and thousands of angels to come down. But um, he didn't. You see, our Lord's humility and meekness I mean, imagine, if Christ can handle this as 100% man, with God we are able to handle anything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, we see Christ's patience to suffer for our sake. We see his love and kindness that he voluntarily endured this for our sake, that we may be saved. And he was not ashamed, as 100% God, 100% man, to be ridiculed for doing what is righteous, bringing glory to his Father. And um, you know, we too can be partakers in Christ's suffering. So here's a question. Do I strike God in the face like these soldiers did? Can you imagine what their judgment will be? In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. What an example Jesus is being here in probably the worst place he could be. Jeremiah 17.9. Um, this is one of the verses that really sticks in my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So we've got to be careful here. You know, um, Pilate is acting sinfully. The soldiers are acting viciously. And because they don't know Christ, because they're not checking themselves, they are wrecking themselves. 
And so after unjustly abusing the prisoner, Pilate now presents Jesus to his accusers, the chief priests, hoping that they are satisfied with this humiliation so that maybe they might drop their case demanding his death. So we read in verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. No fault. Jesus had done nothing offensive to the Roman government, and he was not guilty to the accusations brought against him. In Isaiah 53, second half of verse 9, it says, Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I mean, Christ is innocent here. He's done nothing to overthrow a king. He's done nothing to, um, to cause problems except just speak the truth in love. And we move to verse 5 where it says, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So think about this. If Pilate found no fault in Jesus, he should not have brought him back out to the accusers. Why couldn't he just release him? What was his motive? Well, um, most likely he was just trying to please the people by beating Jesus and saving his conscience by not having him crucified. So, you see, we are getting the insight as to the character of Pilate here and the way he's thinking here. And he's basically in a sticky situation, and he's trying to save himself here. So, um, and think about this. Um, let's say, if you think that you can keep yourself from a greater sin by committing a smaller sin to cover up the bigger sin, um, well, guess what? In the end, you're just going to end up sinning big time. I mean, sin is sin. You start with the little sins and then it creeps up and it just gets bigger and bigger and all of a sudden you're completely numb to it and you're in a whole bunch of trouble and you've got to dig yourself back out. Um, you know, surely after all that humiliation, um, he showed that Jesus was less of a threat and probably not even a danger yet. But uh, look at the response of the chief priests and officers. They would not make good their accusations. You know, they didn't offer any proof, but, uh, but they object to Pilate's judgment, and they demand the innocent to be crucified. In the first part of verse 6, it says, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! All right, so they had seen the cruelty of these beatings. They have seen the humiliation of Christ being mocked. And they witnessed Christ's patience and endurance through this ordeal, and none of this appeased them. They wanted their way, disregarding the Roman governor's judgment, and they were willing to risk the peace and safety of the whole town by this uprising. Now, um, just imagine, you got this mob here who's saying, crucify him and crucify him. Um, how about for us as believers? Can we take that kind of energy and exalt Christ? Psalm 103, verse 1 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now I also want to read some verses from Psalm 34, verse 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Amen. So, um, you know, we have that extreme where the chief priests want him crucified. And I think as believers, we need to go to the extreme and glorify him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. In the second half of verse 6, we read, Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So here Pilate's playing with them a little bit. So this is a kind of an ironic response um, to reiterate his position on the matter. Now, Pilate knew that the Jews could not crucify Christ on their own because the Romans at the time, they gave the Jews freedom to uh, basically govern themselves, but the right of the sword or capital punishment, that was in the hands of the Romans. So, um, but... Even then, you know, looking at, um, at Pilate's conscience, um, what he really should have done was stuck to his conscience. You know, because he was having doubts, and I, it seems like he wanted to release Christ. So, and, um, and he should have protected the accused whom he determined to be innocent. Now, isn't it the call of all leaders in power to uh, protect the innocent? we got to pray for our leaders because uh you know to them is the greater judgment because much more is given to them in authority by god in verse 7 the jews answered him we have a law and according to our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of god all right so we're going into this story further they couldn't get they couldn't convince Pilate to uh, you know, convict Jesus of pretending to be a king, so they move it a step up, and that he pretended to be God. Okay, so to their credit, you know, the Jews did have a very excellent law. It far exceeded the statutes of their surrounding nations. So, um, and it is true that you know, at least they were kind of focusing on on the blasphemy part of this. Um, we read in Leviticus chapter 24, 10 to 16, and blasphemy is a sin that is worthy of death. So it reads here, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed and so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, 
of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So according to the law of the Jews, this is a serious offense that they are accusing Christ of. But was he really guilty of it? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, it reads, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And he will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I mean, so far... I think Jesus is cool. He is just following the law and doing what um, the Lord is commanding him to do. But his accusers, they are boasting of their law with very evil intent. In Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 21, it reads, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Deep, heavy words. If Jesus claimed to be God and this was false, they should have demanded proof of his claim and judged him according to the evidence that he produced. If we look at our Lord's ministry, he was drawing people to God and not away from God. The doctrine he preached, the miracles he performed, they all coincided with Old Testament that they had at the time. So Jesus is cool. It's just that you know the people who are looking at him and accusing him they are totally twisting the law around. Now, there are some warnings to unrighteous decrees in Isaiah chapter 10, first couple of verses. It says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless, what will you do in the day of punishment 
and in the desolation which will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain, for all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I don't know how when you have the law, and uh, you know that there is a big, huge penalty for blasphemy. And you know, if you said something false in those days, and you were accused of it, you would be put to death. And I just can't imagine how these chief priests, knowing the law, knowing, knowing their almighty God, how could they go forth and accuse someone without evidence, risking their own lives and their own salvation? It's just a crazy thing to consider, but um, the heart is deceitful. Got to keep that in mind. So we move to verse 8, where it reads, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Why would Pilate be more afraid? I think something about deity freaked him out. If Jesus was pretending to be deity and Pilate acquits him, he will end up offending the Jews, for they are very zealous about their God. And there was no way he could reconcile them to a pretend God. Then consider Pilate's own conscience. If Jesus is truly the Son of God and he has him crucified, what will Pilate's faith be? Would he be condemned? So um, remember when we mentioned about choosing the smaller sin over the bit bigger sin? It never releases you from sin. So in his freaked out state... Pilate just resumes his uh, questioning of Jesus, but now he moves the questionings inside the judgment hall, away from the noise and confusion of the crowd. And um, think about this. Don't we all need to just turn off all distractions in our lives and have that one-on-one -on -one time, that one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ that we may find the real truth? And um, you know something about that personal relationship it's just a neat thing. In Revelation 3.20, it reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it reads, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Makes me think, if Pilate actually put his trust in Christ, wouldn't Christ have freely taken his burden and made it light? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The very Lord that uh, Pilate was uh, treating unfairly cared for him. John chapter 14, verse 27, it reads, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let, your, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Fear exists when we don't trust in the Lord, when we trust in ourselves, in our own methods. So, moving to verse 9, it says, 
went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Uh, we get a little more insight. Luke chapter 23, verse 6 to 7. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. So previously, when Pilate was direct in asking Jesus where he was a king in previous chapter, verse 33, but this time he doesn't ask directly to Jesus if he is the son of God. So I'm thinking there's some fear dealing with deity in him. And as we read, you know, Jesus remains silent, fulfilling the prophecies and submitting to the Father's will. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When the chief priests asked Jesus if he was the Son of God, Jesus answered them directly. We look in Luke chapter 22, verse 70. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. Now the chief priests, they had, they had a bigger responsibility. They had the scriptures of the Old Testament, which spoke of their Messiah. So they were accountable to this knowledge. However, think about Pilate's situation. And I'm assuming here, but Pilate, being a Gentile, he probably didn't really understand what he was asking. Are you, you know, um, most likely all he knew of were pagan gods. And, uh, but still, you know, we look at Christ, our Lord. He is a perfect gentleman and addresses us where we are at. He doesn't expect any more from us than what he offers us. So in verse 10, it reads, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Note, this is kind of an arrogant response from Pilate. He is boasting of his own authority and power to the point of being able to crucify one whom he had declared to be innocent. I mean, he's basically saying, Yo, show me some respect. Respond when I speak to you. Aren't you grateful that I'm keeping you from being crucified? Or uh, why don't you speak on your defense? You know, uh, there is God's sovereign will, and uh, we are limited to what God allows to happen. And it's all limited to God's foreknowledge. Verse 11, Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Here's another one, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose, your purpose determined. 
before to be done. God is still in control. Our Lord and Savior is still in control, even in this situation. Romans 9.19 You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Another example, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up. Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Isaiah 51, verse 12. I, even I, am he who, comf- who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the Son of Man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the professor? And one final example for this section. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 to 9. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Our Lord is in control. So we move to verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Well, Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but the Jews continued their threats against him. So think of this. If Pilate is not a friend of Caesar, he is not loyal to Caesar. And if he releases Jesus, who claims to be the king, he is siding with Jesus and therefore against Caesar. So he is in a big dilemma here. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So Pilate takes a seat at the judgment and he probably put on his fancy robe and like he usually does. And uh, the pavement or Gabbatha, it, it basically means a raised place or a ridge where the judgment was made from. So He's probably feeling all confident and, um, you know, he's probably done this uh, quite a few times. But here's some interesting insight we get. Um, You know, Pilate's wife actually warned him about a dream that she had about Jesus. and, uh, And she told him, you know, have nothing to do with this guy. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, it reads, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, 
Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So you see, God is still trying to reach out to Pilate. But is Pilate going to listen? And, uh, you know, Pilate washed his hands of this matter and proclaimed himself not guilty of it. In uh, further down in Matthew 27, verse 24, we read, um, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Isn't that insane? That is totally insane. Verse 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Preparation for the Sabbath. I mean, wasn't this the time where the Jews were to cleanse themselves for the Passover Sabbath and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? You know, they were to stop all work. They were to gather all the leaven out of their homes and remove it. And then they had to get the lambs ready for the slaughter. I mean, these guys were out to kill somebody when they should have been checking themselves, cleansing themselves, and preparing themselves to worship the Lord and remember the Passover. It's just crazy what the deceitful heart will do. And we come to the last verse, which reads, But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So now Pilate is once again appealing to the mockery of the king. And we see that the Jews are completely disowning their own king and pledging allegiance to Caesar. In Isaiah chapter 49, first part of verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor. Indeed, if we don't open our eyes to Christ, we can easily turn against him. And um, there are quite a few examples in the Old Testament where the people of God did not want a king of God's choosing. They wanted their own king. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 to 9? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Bless you. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And uh, remember what happened to Pharaoh. God gave him into his own desires. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. And he said, go and tell 
this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return to be healed. It's easy to get numb when you reject the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 23, verse 13 to 16, it reads, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? Who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made of him, made, thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. We know that God is in control because we know the story and how it ends. But um, let's go back to where we were talking about the points at the beginning. So we had Pilate's character and motive. You know, he was preserving himself rather than doing what's right. So he basically washes him his uh, hands of the whole matter and just lets Christ be crucified. Then you have the attitude of the Christ's accusers who um, they boasted of their law with evil intent and, you know, they're the ones who are blaspheming God. And then, most importantly, this is what I want you to focus on. Our Lord's all-encompassing love for humanity and everything he was willing to endure that we may be saved. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for this time in your word. And, Lord, you are just such a gracious, humble God. We thank you for sending your Son to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for his example, that he was willing to endure punishment, pain, scourging, false accusations, to the point of dying on the cross for us. And, Lord God, I ask that uh, your Spirit would minister to each of us today. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you personally or has strayed away from you, Lord, I ask that you would convict them, convince them, draw them to you. And Lord, may today be the day of salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for my sisters and brothers. And Lord, let us not just keep this to ourselves, but share it with everyone we see today that you sent to us. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.